Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. You know, in a lot of ways, my interview with Derek Sivers was really revealing. You know, I see him as I think about it, the interview now and reflect on it. I see him as the ultimate sort of outsider. You know, today he lives in a small community in New Zealand, you know, thousands of miles away from the big media centers of the world. But interestingly, that's exactly the universe he used to play in. You know, he sold CD Baby, his company, for $22 million. And the backstory of the company is interesting. You're, you're about to learn that he started out in business as sort of the ultimate outsider in the music industry. He couldn't get a standard or traditional record label deal, so he went and started distributing his CDs directly to listeners of his music. And eventually, other friends of his, other musicians, asked him to distribute their music. And that was the journey he went through to ultimately build one of the largest catalogs of independent music in the world. Um, you know, eventually got that catalog sold into iTunes and Amazon. And those were key milestones in building the company up to a $22 million business. But it's really what he did after the sale and what he did with the proceeds of the sale that make Derek such an enigma. I'll let him tell you the rest of the story. So, Derek, tell me a little bit about this business, CD Baby. Sure. Well, um, in what way? Do you want to just first know what it is? Yeah, give us a sense of what, what the company did. Okay. Well, first to give a little context, I was just a musician selling my own CD. But this is back in 1997 when there was no PayPal. Like, PayPal didn't exist yet, and Amazon.com was just an online bookstore. And it was a very different world in 1997. So if you were a musician like me trying to sell your CD to the world, there was literally not a single business anywhere on the internet that would sell your CD. Uh, at the time, there were only, uh, there were a couple big online record stores. There was one called cdnow.com and musicboulevard.com, but they were just a front end to the major labels distribution system. So if you were an independent guy, trying to sell your album, um, you couldn't get in those stores. So CD Baby was not meant to be a business. It was really just my band's website where I built a uh, online shopping cart to sell my CD, which, you know, back then was, was a big deal. It was hard to do. You couldn't just put a PayPal button there. It was like three months of hard work and you had to learn some CGI bin pearl programming in order to build a buy now button on your website. So it was like three months of hard work and about $1,000 in setup fees with, to get a merchant account with my local bank. I had to incorporate and set up a separate bank account. And after all that work, I had a buy now button on my website. And um, some of my musician friends in New York City said, whoa, dude can you sell my CD through that thing? And I said, yeah, sure. I was just doing it as a favor to friends. But um, then I started getting calls from strangers, from friends of friends saying, hey man, my friend Dave said you could sell my CD. I said, yeah, if you're a friend of Dave's, no problem, I'll hook you up. And again, I was still just doing it as a favor and it was still on my band's website. Um, Cause yeah, just to emphasize like in 1997, if you were a musician trying to sell your CD on the internet, the only way to do it was a guy named Derek <laughs> in New York that could do it for you. That was it. Those were your options. So, yeah, so it, as you can tell, it uh, it quickly took off and uh, became the largest seller of independent music on the web with over, what was it, like 200,000 musicians. And, uh, yeah, that was it. So I ran it for 10 years. 
Fantastic. And so were you at the end still shipping physical CDs or had it gone sort of digital distribution like in iTunes or what was the, what was the model? No, iTunes didn't even exist until six years into the company's history. So no, it's still, um, CD Baby still to this day does physical shipping of CDs. And then the digital distribution aspect was added when the iTunes music store launched in 2003. It was, um, yeah, Apple called me into their office and said, uh, yeah, we'd like you to come into one infinite loop in Cupertino and meet with us. And uh, I came in thinking I was going to be meeting with some marketing dude or somebody in biz dev. And instead, Steve Jobs himself walked out in full presentation mode um, saying he wants to get every piece of music ever recorded up and selling in the iTunes music store and wants to get our whole catalog up and selling there. So, yeah, for a while, like when when iTunes was bragging that they had four million songs available in the iTunes music store. Well, two million of those were from me. Fantastic. So you did a deal with Jobs? Yeah, well, with Apple, yeah. And that was not fun. What was he like as a person? Oh, horrible. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a story in my book. So uh, a, a couple years ago, I, I wrote a book called Anything You Want that's like a quick little one-hour, 88-page book uh, that Seth Godin asked me to write where I kind of sum up everything I learned in 10 years of uh, starting, building, and selling CD Baby. I kind of compressed all of those lessons into one hour and made it a little book called Anything You Want. Um, and there's a chapter in there you'll see called uh, The Day Steve Jobs Dissed Me in a Keynote. So yeah, it was uh, it was horrible dealing with him. And in fact, he like at one of his famous keynote speeches kind of personally dissed me from the stage. And uh, that was a low What did point. he say? Do um, you want the whole story? Sure. All right. <laughs> so I told you that, you know, when we first went into Apple's office, they said, we want every piece of music ever recorded up and selling in the iTunes music store. I thought, great, that's amazing. This is like a revolution for independent musicians, which, you know, I don't know if you know, but independent musicians have never had the breaks, it's always been really hard. It's like the major label artists get all the opportunities. And if you're not signed to a label, you're treated like, you know, dog food, right? And the fact that Apple, with this iTunes platform, said they want every piece of music ever recorded, this was huge. It's like, finally, for this tr first time in history, indies are going to have a level playing field with the majors. Like, they'll be right there presented, whatever, Madonna, Miles Davis, and... Milt Frankenstein will all have equal, um, equal, whatever you call it, placement on the iTunes Music Store. So I thought this was huge. So we said, great. We signed their contract, sent it to them, and they just didn't return the signed contract. And like every time I asked them, like, what's up? We're ready to begin. Um, nothing. Like just stonewalled. Like, hello, is anybody there? Can we begin? Hello. Like nobody replied. And so Apple did this thing where they said in order to upload music to the iTunes Music Store, we had to use their special Apple software and it had to be on a Mac. And we had to upload music using, uh, it had to be ripped from the original CD and we had to retype all of the song titles and bio using their software. And it was going to be a lot of work per album because, you know, I had like 200,000 albums. So it was going to take us $40 per CD like in labor charges to do all that work they needed us to do, right? Uh, so I passed on that expense to the musicians saying, if you want us to get your 
CD up and selling in the iTunes Music Store. We're going to have to pull it from the shelves again and do all this work and upload it and retype everything and re-upload it on Mac software. So I'm going to have to charge you $40 to do this um, to meet Apple's standards. So if you want to be up and selling on the iTunes Music Store, uh, just pay $40 here and I'll take care of the rest. So 5,000 musicians did that. So 200,000 bucks kind of prepaid in advance, which helped me buy all the Apple equipment and hire the people ready to upload to Apple. But Apple still wasn't like replying to us. So I had loudly announced this thing the day after Steve Jobs said they wanted every piece of music ever recorded. So I loudly announced it to my clientele. Everybody paid their 40 bucks and I sat there waiting for Apple to return their contract. And they didn't. And on the other hand, the good thing was because I announced this, like Yahoo Music and Rhapsody and Napster and uh, who else? Amazon and, and all these other services came to us asking for the entire CD Baby catalog. So that was cool. Um, so all of these musicians were up and selling in all of these other stores, everybody but Apple. And I guess Apple was starting to catch some flack for this. Like, hey, Napster has a uh, an online catalog of 4 million songs. Why does Apple only have 1 million, right? And um, so I guess Steve Jobs was starting to catch some flack for this. Like, why does Apple not have a big catalog. So he went and did one of his big giant WWDC something keynote speeches. And he got up on stage and he said, you know, people have been asking why Apple doesn't have as many songs as the other guys. And he said, that's because we feel that the major labels provide a valuable service. They filter, they filter the best of the best and only provide you with the best music. He said, do you know there's, there's a service out there where for $40, just anyone can, can upload their music to these other services? He said, well, we don't want that stuff here. No, we, we feel that the record labels do a valuable job by editing and not letting just anybody in. And like my jaw dropped. I was like, what, what the, how do you, uh, you said you wanted every piece of music ever recorded. And uh, so, you know, I was angry for a day and then I went back to all my clients and I said, I'm sorry. Steve Jobs has changed his mind and does not want your music. So I refunded everybody's $40. I, I you know, lost 200,000 bucks that day because I'd already spent it on the Apple equipment necessary to do their thing. I refunded everybody's 40 bucks. And I said, sorry, everybody. I will, I will never again promise something that is out of my control. I thought that I had a promise from Apple, you know, that I could send them your music, but they changed their mind. So here's your $40 back. And so the very ever, next, did you ever consummate the deal with Apple? Yeah, I was going to say. So the very next day, I got the signed contract back from Apple, <laughs> saying, "Okay, here's our FTP password. Please start sending us the music." You fucking assholes! All right. <laughs> so yeah, I, I currently do not own any Apple products. No iPhone. No Macs. Fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So. Talk to us about the sale of CD Baby. So uh, obviously it had had a successful run. How big was the company when you went to sell it in terms of either revenue or you know some proxy for size? Sure. Well, actually, in uh, I usually don't think of these numbers, but in preparation for this call, I thought you might want to know. So I pulled up the the numbers as they were the day I sold the company. Uh, gross revenue, hundred and thirty nine million. The amount of money I had paid out directly to the musicians was $83 million. Um, I also had a little web hosting company on the side that we never really talk about, but it was bundled together with CD Baby as part of the sale. And um, so it was called Host Baby, and Host Baby had brought in $7.5 in revenue. 
And total music sold to customers was $73 million. Um, so that's what the numbers looked like the day I sold the company. And, and talk to us about the process of selling. So okay. what was the triggering event that made you want to sell, first of all? Okay, so this is, so I got to explain to your audience that the whole situation was a little unique. Going all the way back, it's why I took a little time at the beginning of this call to give the full context that I was really just a musician selling my own CD. The point was I never meant to start a business. Like I wasn't trying to start a business. I didn't need the money. I was making my full-time living as a professional musician, um, gigging, uh, producing people's records, playing on people's records, going on tour. So I was actually living the dream. Like this is all I had ever wanted since I was 14 years old was to be a professional musician. And I was doing it. I was living the dream. I even like bought a house with the money I made touring. So the last thing I wanted was for something to get in between me and my career as a musician, right? So when CD Baby started growing, I was actually really reluctant. Like I didn't want it to grow. I didn't want it to take off. So I never had any investors um, because I didn't want any investment because I didn't want the business to grow. Um, so it really just grew despite my efforts to keep it small, right? So because I wasn't doing it for the money, and again, it's really important that I had no investors. There was nobody waiting for some big return from me. I had never, ever, ever planned on selling the company. So you remember the, the first dot-com boom, how there were just like IPOs everywhere and so much money being thrown at anything that had a dot-com on the end. So I turned down uh, infinite numbers of offers to buy the company because they started coming in almost as soon as I started the company. Like as soon as it started going well, I would get like a few offers a week <laughs> from people wanting to buy the company. And I just said, no, out of the question, it's not for sale. And I ended up just telling my customer service team to just don't even send those emails or calls to me. Just the answer is no. If you get somebody on the phone that's asking about acquisitions or investments, just tell them, no, no, thank you. We don't need investors. We're not looking to sell. Goodbye. So that was the answer for 10 years. And, and I thoroughly meant it. In fact, even, NPR, uh, National Public Radio, did an interview with me where they asked that question on the air, like, will you ever sell the company? I said, nope, absolutely not. I plan on doing this until I die. This is just my hobby. And I really meant it. And um, so, yeah, after 10 years, um, I hit the point where, uh, well, you probably want to know the triggering events that made me decide to sell in the first place, right? You bet. Okay. So... <laughs> So number one was that the internal company culture had gotten unbearable. Um, a few rotten eggs kind of spoiled the barrel. And just whereas it used to be one big happy family for the first eight years, like the last two years just turned really nasty. And just like everybody was like at each other's throats and at my throat. And it felt a little bit like, a mutiny, you know, like the making the captain walk the plank, like everybody decided to funnel all of their anger into me and make everything my fault and wanted to try to like kick me out of the company, even though, you know, it was my company 100%. There were no other, there was no board of directors, there were no shareholders, it was just me. But yet they were kind of like trying to kick me out of the company. And just that like, that's how bad the culture, company culture became. So, um, so actually my first option, I, long before I ever thought of selling, I was thinking of a few options of, for one, just maybe just shutting down the company. Um, 
just saying, okay, it's been a fun run. Goodbye. <laughs> Everybody's fired. All cut. All CDs sent back to the customers. Take care, everybody. It's been it's been a fun time, but I'm not enjoying this anymore. So goodbye. So that was actually the first thing I thought of was just shutting down. But then somebody reminded me, like, well, if you're going to shut it down, you, you could sell it. I went, oh yeah, forgot about that. Um, and then I had this other option, which was like, you know, I, I really love the business and I love the customers and I love the clients. It's just the employees and I that are just having an awful time. And yes, I could go hire some psychologists and go spend a lot of time trying to repair all those relationships, or I could just pick up and move the company to a different part of the country <laughs> and, and uh, hire a whole new staff somewhere else. And I considered that for a bit. And I just decided, uh, sounds like a lot of work. I've been doing this for 10 years. I think I'm kind of over it. So really that's, that was the final straw is realizing that kind of like an artist, I felt like I had put the final brushstroke on my painting or, you know, uh, written the last sentence of my novel. It felt like everything I ever set out to do with this business was done already. And I didn't have that much more to add. Like I didn't have much of a vision for the future. I really felt like I had, I had just rewritten all of the software behind it. Uh, everything was running wonderfully. It was a very profitable year. Everything was going awesome. And I felt like, yeah, that's, that is the conclusion of my work with CD Baby. So it was right around that time that as usual, I got like three offers in one week to buy the company, as I always had, and I just told them all no. But that weekend, I thought about it. I said, you know, actually considering everything, maybe I should start to entertain those offers. Um, I spent some time in my diary and thought about it. Whereas before the idea of leaving my company, about giving it up, was like unbearable. I was like, no, this is my baby. This is my thing. This is my creation. But suddenly it felt like, yeah, that might be really nice to not be... Derek at cdbaby.com anymore. So yeah, I called back those three offers and I said, maybe, um, let's talk and opened up my books and let them all have at it. And I also contacted Amazon um, because I always thought that Amazon would be the most uh, appropriate daddy for my baby, if you know what I mean. So uh, because I was entertaining three other offers, I called Amazon and talked to acquisitions and said, hey, just so you know, I'm talking to three other companies about selling CD Baby. So just thought you guys should have a shot too. And so yeah, Amazon became the fourth company that was in the running and making offers. And um, in the end, actually, Amazon was willing to offer more money, but I chose a company called Disc Makers that I felt knew my clientele really well. Like we had already been working alongside them for years. They were a CD manufacturing company that already worked with my existing clients. And so, yeah, I sold it to them. And when you had those four uh, conversations going, did you have representation? Did you have an M&A person sort of representing you in those conversations? Were you dealing directly with the acquirers? I was dealing directly. <laughs> I, um, I think I, I gave them access to my my CPA or I kind of like told my accountant, like, hey, if they might need to ask you some questions that I don't know the answer to. So, um, but no, it was just me directly. And what was that negotiation process like? I mean, did you play one offer off the other? Did you draw it out trying to drive up the price or was it fairly surgical? Maybe describe that a little bit. Um, let's see. <laughs> um, let me think. Well, first off, and what I highly recommend to anybody is knowing what your deal breakers are in advance, because it's not just all about the money. So for example, 
I called a friend of mine who had sold his company to disc makers a few years beforehand. Um, and I said, hey, how did it feel? Like it, his was a similar situation where it was very much like his baby, his project. It was very tied together with his personality, same as mine was. I said, how did that feel, like selling your company? And he said, it's, it was good. He said, it's kind of, um, what do you call that? Uh, bittersweet, mixed blessings, something like that. That um, He said, it's weird having a boss. I said, what do you mean? He said, I, I work for them now. Like, I have a boss <laughs> that says no to things that I want to do. I'm like, ew, yeah, no, I would never do that. <laughs> so it's like, number one, like deal breaker. No, the, the minute this wire transfer is done, I'm gone. Like, I will not be working for you. No consultation. Um, I'm just gone the minute the sale is done. So that was that was a deal breaker. The other one was that I had some other business ideas that I wanted to do to serve my same clientele. And because the business was so tied up with me personally, these were very much my clients. Uh, so I said, I need full access to my database after the sale. Like I'm going to continue talking to these musicians and providing other services to them. So I, we made a very narrow non-compete and an agreement that I was allowed to continue you know, talking to these clients. Um, if somebody had said, no, you know, the, the day the sale is done, you're no longer allowed to communicate with those people. Well, then I, I wouldn't have sold for any price. That was no money would make that okay. You know, these were my friends. Um, so things like that. So I had a few deal breakers that I knew like that. And I, those are the main ones. So the narrow non-compete uh, and the I'm not working for you um, and that. And so, so Derek, let me just ask you a question. On the narrow non-compete, um, I'm assuming, you know, you were you were forbidden from starting up another directly competitive CD company. Maybe just describe yeah. So people get a sense of what what they can possibly negotiate for in their exit. Uh, for you, sort of, where did the the non compete start and stop? Yeah, and you you named it. That was about the gist of it. It's like I will not be starting another music distribution company or web hosting company. Um, and even then, we set a ten year limit on it. Um, uh, but other than that, uh, I've made a point of spelling out the other ideas I had in mind. Like I will be doing music promotion services. I'll be doing consulting. I'll be doing, I don't know, anything else, just not the, the very specific things that CD Baby and Toast Baby were doing. Got it. And then as it relates to, you know, I'm not working for you after the sale. I mean, the skeptic in me says, okay, that sounds great, Derek, but like there must've been some transition period that you agreed to because the moment the wire transfer goes through, like the buyer needs to know how to open the doors in the morning <laughs> and, and, you know, that needs to know that the, the passwords for, you know, there's, there are some basic things. So I get that you weren't working for the buyer, but how did you, how did you manage that transition so that the new owner could, could sort of operate the business the day you, you accepted the wire transfer? Um, well, in my case, I had already removed myself from the business beforehand. That's kind of a separate subject. Uh, but I hadn't actually been to the office in a year and a half at the time that I sold. Um, when I say that, like my employees and I were not getting along, it was that extreme. <laughs> like in about a year and a half before I sold is when I <laughs> kind of said, well, fuck you guys, <laughs> never speaking to you again. And a year later sold the business. So no, I never did speak to them again. Um, I hadn't been to the office in a long time. Uh, it was a self-running machine without me. 
and yeah, and as of the day of the sale, I think it was like August 8th, 2008, I really never spoke with anyone there ever again since that day. So no, I, I gave the gave the new owners the password to the database and um, kind of sent a little email internally to the company, to my employees saying, hey, um, Disc Makers is the new owner. I wish you guys the best. Bye. <laughs> and that was it. How does that feel eight years on? Um, do, do, you, do you feel any sort of, any sort of regret or, or personal responsibility that those relationships um, died along with, you know, that, that part of your life, if you will, did, did, as you reflect back on it now, eight years later? Um, there were, you mean like the, the relationships with the employees? Yeah. Um, no, it was more like no matter what sweet past we had, Things had gotten so corrupt that it was just kind of almost like, you know, when you have a breakup with a girlfriend, boyfriend type thing, um, when things get really bad at the end, you're just, you're happy to walk away and just let it go. Like, so, you know, maybe we could have worked in counseling for a long time to try to repair this relationship, or we can just shrug it off and say, oh, well, and move on with our lives, you know? So yeah, I, I chose the latter. I, I really did try for a couple years to make those relationships work inside the company. Um, but man, I was glad, so glad to just walk away that day of the sale and just like, you guys are not my problem anymore. Good luck with that. <laughs> so I, it, it makes me sound like a nasty bastard, but you know, talk to anybody after they've just, you know, the day they break up with a girlfriend or boyfriend and that's how you feel, right? Like, so it, it was that personal for me. I mean, these, these employees were people that had slept on my couch and had stayed with me for sometimes a month at a time. Like a few of them had moved to Portland, Oregon to work for me and they were my roommate for a month. And I knew these people really well. And the fact that those relationships all went sour was devastating. It was, it was like, yeah, it was, it was horrible. It was really probably if you still to this day, if you had to ask me, what was the, what's the worst day of your life so far? I would point to July 10th, 2007, when um, my employees had a meeting without me. And I think they were unaware that somebody was recording it or they had forgotten. We always recorded all of our weekly meetings, uh, like made an audio recording for people that couldn't be there. But on July 10th, 2007, um, when I heard that MP3 the next day and just listening to all these people that I loved kind of uh, railing against me, um, yeah, I, I kind of just, I had to emotionally detached after that devastation, you know? What was the, the nature of their frustration with you or, or their breakdown? I mean, was it over money or the way you wanted to run the company? I mean, talk, talk a little bit about how it broke it, down. Actually, the gist is it, it was about nothing and it didn't even really matter. There was, there was a, just a couple years ago, I got a really nice email from one of the guys that was part of that vocal gang against me. And he's now living in Idaho and he's a guitar teacher. But most importantly, I think actually he's opened a guitar studio that provides lessons to students and it grew beyond what he could handle. And suddenly he had to hire a couple people to work for him. So for the first time ever, the guy that was an employee is now an employer. And he sent me an email out of the blue, like, Hey, my name's Dan. I don't know if you remember me. I used to work for you back in, you know, back at CD Baby. He said, man, I owe you a huge apology. <laughs> he said, I never realized how hard it is to have employees. And 
it's really hard. And uh, he said, we really treated you unfairly. He said, I don't even remember what it was about. He said, I don't even think it was about anything. He said, I think we just decided that you were the, the source of all of our problems and that you were just evil. And we just decided that in advance, that you were evil and therefore everything you did was wrong and everything we were unhappy about was your fault. He said, I just owe you the biggest apology, man. I am so, so sorry for the way I treated you and we treated you. And that was really horrible. I'm really sorry. <laughs> and I, could, I didn't see it until now. So yeah, that, that was a really sweet kind of cathartic uh, email to get. Um, but yeah, it was about nothing. Interesting. So what did you end up selling the company for? Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was never going to admit this because I figured it was just nobody's business. And then, yeah, years ago, I think it was the guy from Mixergy asked me really directly. And I have a hard time not answering questions that are asked directly of me. So it was it was 22 million. And to answer your question earlier about like, did I play the the bidders off of each other? I, I did a little bit, but it was less about the money to me and more about the those terms that were important to me. So if at any point, one of the companies that was bidding said, hmm, I don't know about this thing. We're going to have to reopen this idea of you accessing your customer database after the sale. I was like, nope, we're done here. <laughs> no more discussion. I'll just go with the other guys. Take care. Goodbye. <laughs> and they'd say, okay, okay, okay. Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, okay. We'll, we'll keep talking. That's fair. So it was more about, um, it wasn't about driving up the price as it was about getting my terms. How, how much more was Amazon willing to pay? Um, a few million more. <laughs> and the 22, was it, can you just talk about what multiple of either, like a, a profit that, that represented? Do you have a sense of that? Um, roughly, CD Baby was making about $4 million a year net profit at the time that I sold. Not net so, profit before tax? Good question. Yes, I think so. Um, so... Yeah, they came up with that $22 million, and I basically said, okay. I was like, yeah, that's actually a little more than I was expecting, and that's fine. So we're good. And so, yeah, again, it wasn't really about the money. Because you may have heard um, or seen that I ended up just giving all the money away anyway. So I didn't really want the money. I didn't need the money. It wasn't, you know, somebody could have offered $50 million. It would have just been all the same to me. I didn't care. Tell us about that. So you, you decided to give away this money. Uh, who to and what was your thinking? And tell us about that. Okay. Um, so I had a lot of time to get philosophical. Um, in between this handshake agreement we had of a 22 million price and agreement on the terms, and there was about eight months where the purchasing company had to do a lot of due diligence and then they had to go raise financing from their side. So they had to go to their VCs and money from them to do this deal. And it was just eight months of waiting around and answering their questions. Um, so I had eight months to get philosophical and think about what the hell am I going to do with $22 million? Because again, like remember, I, I was the sole owner with no investors and I was already making $4 million a year at that point. So I had already paid off all my debts, paid off my mortgage, bought the Mini Cooper car I wanted and there was there was nothing else I wanted to buy. And I had a few million dollars in the bank, just in cash, you know, and like I had no other needs in life. So I mentioned to my uh, my lawyer who had a tax law background, I, I had mentioned this to him. He was the guy that was helping me with this deal. And I said, like, I'm just going to 
he said something about the 22 versus the 25 million. I said, you know, it, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to give it all away anyway. And he said, what do you mean? I said, look, what kind of fool would I have to be to spend $22 million in my lifetime? Like, what am I going to get, like get into Ferraris or develop a, a, a fine taste to, for uh, Icelandic horses or something like that? Like, no, like, I'm, I'm just not that kind of guy. I am never going to spend $22 million in my lifetime. And I think that's even too much money to like leave to my kid. Well, I, in fact, I didn't have a kid at the time and I wasn't planning on having a kid at the time. But I just felt like, look, I'm just going to give pretty much all of it away. I mean, I'll, I'll use some of it for a living wage and maybe someday I'll buy a house. I didn't even, you know, have a house at that point. Um, so, yeah, he said, well, are you serious about that? Are you really going to give it all away? I said, yeah. In fact, I think I really like the idea of giving it away to music education because it kind of completes the circle of life, right? Like all of this money came from musicians and music fans. It should go back to music education to help develop the next generation of musicians. Like it kind of brings a tear to my eye. That's really sweet. That gives a lot of meaning to what I've done here. He said, okay, are you really, really serious about this? Like you, you're really going to give it away. I said, yeah. He said, okay, because if you're serious and this is like irreversible, there is a really smart way for you to set this up. And I said, what do you mean? He said, okay, imagine this. And, and this, I hope you're, this is actually the main reason I'm doing this interview is because I hope that your listeners consider um, this idea I'm about to propose or that he proposed to me and that I did and that I hope your listeners might do someday, is that if you're considering giving the money away anyway, you could just take the total amount, in my case, $22 million, and you'll get taxed on it. Um, say $7 million of that will go to taxes, leaving you with $15 million. And then you'll give away $15 million to charity, right? But there's a different way to structure it, that if you give your company away into a charitable trust uh, in advance before you sell it, then your company at the time of sale is no longer owned by you. It's now owned by this charitable trust. And so when the purchasing company buys it, so in my case for 22 million, that entire 22 million never touches your hands. It just goes directly into the charitable trust. And therefore the entire transaction is not taxed because it's all going to charity. And therefore the entire 22 million, not 15 million goes to charity. So I thought about it and it's, it's irreversible once you set it up. Um, so we created a charitable remainder unitrust that was uh, created to benefit music education. I gifted the ownership of the company into the charitable trust, and then the purchasing company bought it from the charitable trust. So that 22 million never touched my hands. So who are the and trustees of the, of the, of the trust today? Uh, my sister. <laughs> are, are you a trustee? No. Um, I, I was at first, but then... <laughs> We just decided it was better to have one layer off. But to be clear, uh, this is it's not a foundation. So it's not like an ongoing operating thing that is reviewing bids and making grants. It's really more like a will. It just means that while I'm alive, the money in the trust just um, builds and builds and builds. It's just invested in mutual funds or whatever. And it just gets to compound and grow. And so maybe by the time I die, it'll be like 200 million in the trust, right? And then the day I die, is when it gets paid out to um, the named beneficiaries, the charities. So it just gets to just sit and grow while I'm alive. Why not give get, it? To, why not give it to the charities now and and let them use it for their benefit today? 
because um, for two things, I liked the idea of letting it compound and grow. But I also liked the security of, if you look up in US tax law, it's called a charitable remainder unit trust. And what it does is it actually pays out the settlor, meaning me, um, 5% of its value per year for life. So it's usually set up by old people that have amassed a fortune that they are in their sunset years and they know they don't need the entire fortune anymore but they would like a little ongoing income to pay for their retirement home or whatever. So that's basically what I set up for myself at age 38 is um, I am getting a little annual payout. To the tune of a that, million bucks. <laughs> yeah. And that pays all of my, uh, it pays all my cost of living. So it wasn't like a completely altruistic move. It, it was saying, it wasn't saying I don't want any of this money. It was saying like, like pretty much all of it's going to charity. So that's why I set it up like that. Fantastic. And so for folks who are interested in this strategy, can you just say it's, it's called a, a specific kind of trust? Can you just say it again for yep. folks clearly? Yeah, charitable remainder unit trust. And I highly recommend it. In fact, if I, every now and then somebody will ask, like, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do? And I would have put the company into a, a trust type ownership situation long beforehand. Um, but again, I mean, that's just me. I had no investors or in it. So it's just, it's a nice thing to set up early um, so that as your company grows, say, for example, if the company would have been owned by a charitable trust years earlier, then I think um, more, of it, more of its profits would have been untaxed because the charity would have already owned it, you know? What a fascinating strategy and uh, what a huge gift that will be one day. Uh, just given yeah. your youth and given the compound interest that uh, hopefully will uh, will take uh, take place over time. It's it's also, you know, for everybody, I know this isn't for everybody, but everybody's got to, you've got to be honest with yourself um, as far as like, not just what do most people do or what's the norm, but what do you personally really want? So I, I have a problem with excess. You know, I don't, I only, like, for example, in my apartment, I only own two plates because I don't really have company over. I have me and I have my kid, but I've never felt a need to own more than two plates. And so I only own two plates. I only, I only own one pair of pants because I can't wear more than one at a time. I have a pair of shorts so that if those pair of pants are in the wash, I wear my shorts. So that's just like the kind of person I am. I don't like to have more than I need. Um, so this, this suited me, but you know, I spend a lot of time in Asia and I meet a lot of people who love giant opulence and they love to have the giant seven bedroom home with three cars. And for them, you know, this probably isn't the best way to go. Where do you live now, Derek? Um, <laughs> uh, renting a little apartment in Wellington, New Zealand. And how did you pick New Zealand? I'm a guy from New York. How did that happen? Um, had a kid. I was living in Singapore and had a kid and felt that I didn't want my kid to grow up in densely urban Singapore. I felt that kids need nature and uh, I love to grow up in the great outdoors playing with sticks in the mud and throwing rocks in the water and forests and beaches and all that and I just thought New Zealand would be my dream come true scenario for a kid to grow up in so yeah I did nine months of paperwork and um, this is actually where you know you talk about the that annual payout I get from the trust this is where it comes in handy is is when you want to move to a country almost any country will welcome you if you can invest into their country so yeah, I did a little investment into New Zealand and became a legal resident and, and plan on staying for 
quite a few years, at least for my kid to grow up here. That's fantastic. Derek, where can people reach you if they want? Do you, do you accept emails or what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, um, I actually, the other reason uh, or the main reason I do interviews like this, as you can tell, I'm not plugging anything. <laughs> I have no other, no other benefit um, from doing this interview other than hearing from cool people. So I find that some of the coolest people I've met are people who uh, make it all the way to the end of an interview like this and feel the need to contact me. So my email address is Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at Sivers, S-I-V-E-R-S, dot O-R-G, org. And yeah, that's my website too, Sivers.org. Um, again, it's, it's non-commercial. You'll see. It's a plain Jane website with no ads. Everything I do is out in the open for free. Um, so help yourself. Derek Sivers, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.